0: Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest is the Chief Development Officer at LifeLab Kids, a nonprofit organization that provides comprehensive quality care to children with developmental disabilities. She started her career as an attorney after graduating from the University of Chicago with an undergraduate degree in psychology and the University of Notre Dame Law School with her Juris Doctorate. Melanie practiced law on the East Coast before returning home to Michigan. After going through the 2008 recession and the legal job market's ups and downs, Melanie worked for the state of Michigan as a program manager for Children's Protective Services. After 10 years with the state and gaining positive experience in volunteer fundraising for the Junior League of Birmingham, Michigan, Melanie left her position at the state to become a fundraising professional. She worked in the advancement departments at Walsh College and the Henry Ford Museum before joining Life Lab Kids. Melanie lives with her husband, son, and three cats in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Melanie, thank you so much for joining For those of you that have listened, I've brought up Melanie as an example of just badass leadership, women that have changed my life personally, and just someone that is just so great. So Melanie, I'm so happy you finally came on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for that hype. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. You deserve all the hype. (laughs) So you have a lot of you
0: and how, of course, we know each other because I was a former member of Junior League of Birmingham. And... Just have kept in touch since. And I just love your career transition. And you've just been one of those badass women that I know. So, kind of throwing it back to childhood,
1: what did you want to be when you grew up? Or what were you like as a child? I feel like I went through some different phases. I think my peak childhood was like in kindergarten, first grade. I feel like that very much is who I am today. I knew I was a leader. I always had ideas. I was a kid leading people across the playground. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. You know, I was that person, I guess. Someone that they probably would have labeled as bossy and too talkative. You know, I ended up changing schools. It was very difficult for me. I think I got shy. Like, I didn't know. I mean, shy in the sense that I just became an observer. And I just feel like this evolution of yourself. And I feel like it took me, I don't know, I don't want to say 40 years, but maybe it was 40 years to come back to five-year-old Melanie. So when I was first grade, I wanted to be – I grew up in a town that was fairly small. It was Horton, Michigan. It's below Jackson, Michigan. You know, I told people I wanted to be Secretary of State. They thought I meant an office secretary. I literally meant like U.S. Secretary of State. No, the Secretary of State. Like the Secretary of State. And not Michigan one's fine, but no, I meant like, you know, like a Madeleine Albright of sorts. As I got older, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I thought that was the path to becoming Secretary of State. But sometimes, you know, I think what I liked the idea is it seemed like that was a very effective position to make change. And I think with kids, you know, you have to get down to the root of like, why did you like that job? And it's like, then people would tell you like, oh, you should be a lawyer then. You're like, oh, yes, I should be a lawyer then, you know, because someone who tells you that that's what your path should be for you to achieve what you want to do. And it's just sort of funny that you find out in the end that it's really a trait of the job that's the great part, maybe not necessarily the job itself That when you're a kid. Do you even remember
0: where it came from that you wanted to be Secretary of State? Like that, I don't even think
1: I knew what that was. Okay, this really dates me. This is like the Reagan era. (laughs) You know, back in the day when you, you know, everybody watched local TV. And so if I went to my grandma's, like local news would be on or state news or 60 Minutes. And if you think about, you know, you would be a kid then it was much easier to get exposure to different politicians because now there's, you know, 300 million different cable channels. I don't think my son could probably tell you (laughs) who the secretary of state is. Yeah, I mean, Gretty's young, but I'm just saying it was so much easier, I think, to understand like who the vice president was and what they did. And you'd hear them talk. And I went in that era, you know, there was so much happening with na- international affairs. and Of course, being from a small town, anything international was super glamorous. You know, I was obvious, always aspirational <laughs> in my youth. It wasn't old Vogue's. It was, you know, it was 60 Minutes. (laughs) That's how I glommed onto it. And I can't remember who the Secretary of State was under Reagan, but I just remember listening to the news and just listening to things he talked about and the travel. And I was like, wow, what a job. I don't think I appreciate the time. There really was just one job for that, you know, with that (laughs) and not, you know, hundreds of those jobs, but. I'm
0: so curious because I think I knew this, but I didn't realize you grew up in such a small town. But what made you make the jump? I mean, you went to University of Chicago and then went to Notre Dame. What made you do that?
1: You know, my town I grew up in, it was super small. I mean, I did end up going to like Jackson, the bigger town for most of my schooling. But I mean, it was one of those post office library combo towns where you had like a convenience smart gas station that was the whole town. I mean, (laughs) so of course he drove to the nearest bigger town to do anything bigger. But I guess just because I was, I think I read almost every book in that library that they had, you know, it's a closet library, but I think I read everything that was, you know, permissible for a kid my age to check out at the time. And, you know, when you read, it opens your world. You realize that everyone doesn't live like you and that there's a lot of other out there for you to find. And so for me, I always knew that was the big thing for me is like, I had to see it for myself, you know, and not just dream it through reading it. And then, right, I did well on my, whatever the college scores are, ACTs or PSATs or whatever we did. And so I'd gotten a lot of like reach outs. And, you know, I thought I was just going to go to Michigan because, you know, Michigan was close. And there was some sort of Michigan scholarship that for being a Michigan kid, and I just thought that was going to be my path. And I Much to my regret, a little bit still, I didn't apply to NYU because I always thought that that would be my dream as going to school there. But I got a call from the University of Chicago and I talked to a student and he encouraged me to open up their packet and look at it. And when I looked at the essays, there was something just so quirky and unusual about it because it didn't ask you the normal, I would say, stupid, boring questions. They asked you to to create other things. So it was like a list of 27 objects or things and you had to write a story that didn't end in death or you had to pick an event in the past, why you would choose to go to it. And so I wrote mine about the Truman Capote's black and white ball. And that was where I wanted to go. Wait, <laughs> and what? There had been a Vanity Fair article, because, you know, I was a verse reader even in high school, about Truman Capote's black and white ball in the 60s. And one, it was glamorous, obviously, because you're talking about being New York City, and you're inviting like. He invited everyone from the lowest stratosphere, like bums off the street all the way up to the Rothschilds. And just the idea of mixing these crews and just the conversations you had. And so that was what my essay was about. And so I had to FedEx my essay because I think it was literally due the next day. <laughs> and they took me. And I don't know. And it came down to I was fortunate to get a good amount of money that it was the same price for me to stay in state or go out of state. And so off I went to Chicago, the dreams of the big city. <laughs> so It was great for me. I had grown up with a lot of the same kind of people, which is fine. But you know, there, you know, there were communists, there was this, it took all kinds there, you know, people from the fourth estate, I was like, you got the whole gamut. Plus, everyone there was so smart. It was really intimidating, because it goes from being like literally the shark in a small town to being a minnow in you know, the ocean. But you know, it was a good experience for me to just get out of my shell. No, and it's so interesting
0: because I feel like a lot of people kind of stay, stick to what they know and some either it's like go crazy or just stay in the same town, grow there, have their own kids there. So I love that. And kind of transitioning to going back
1: to your 18-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give young Melanie there? I don't really get into the whole track of regrets too often because I think I'm really happy where I am and had I changed a decision, I wouldn't be me and I like who I am now. But I would tell younger me, and I know this actually would actually with, you know, if you think about the whole ripple effect, this would change my future. But, you know, I felt like I spent a lot of time in my 18, 20s, even up to my mid-30s, really changing who I was to make other people feel big. I am a direct person, and I know I'm a smart person. A lot of people are smart, though, so it doesn't make me special. But I think that, you know, in the, when I was coming up through law, especially, it was not a welcome thing. Before 2008, and this is just my opinion, you know, law was exceptionally traditional. There was an expectation for you to be that classic woman. You could be smart, but not too loud, you know. And I felt that I spent a lot of time just, I guess, dulling my shine to not stand out. And I guess as I've kind of evolved as a person, I would say that. No one is going to pay attention to you. I think there's this myth with people who work hard and are smart and they think, oh, if I just sit in this corner and I keep pushing this work out, people are going to notice because they're going to just see like, look how she's doing this good work. That is not how things work. It does not work that way. Hard work is always necessary, but you have to push yourself forward. And so if you think that by, you know, dimming your light and sitting in your corner, pushing out a work is going to, you know, vault you to the forward, it's not going to because the people who are going to you know try to push themselves forward are always going to step ahead of you. And I guess that's my advice for 18-year-old Melanie is that you are fine the way you are. There is a place for you.
0: It's so true and I don't know if you saw the Nike commercial, I think it was a few years ago that it had like all like actresses and athletes and all these women that it was like, "Oh, don't be too loud, don't be too sexy, don't be too this." Like it was like so funny. And that just like reminded me of that. And I think it's great piece of advice and great reminder for all these young women. I mean, I remember being at 18 and my boyfriend, and I just talked about this last night. I was like, 18 year old Angela would be, would worship who I am now and just be like, Oh, I wish I had that much confidence or I wish I could do that. That could never be me or just, you know, getting walked all over, just not realizing like what's normal and what's not and learning that. I
1: guess this goes back to you are talking about how, you know, people don't take that leap. And I guess I've come to this point in my life, and this goes to imposter syndrome too, is a lot of times you think that you're not ready for something or you're not there. But quite frankly, there is no perfect time to be ready for anything. And there's no growth available if you wait until you're ready. (laughs) So I guess I've taken the tact in life that I know that most of the time I'm able to do things competent to well. And why would this choice be any differently? So if I'm going to put my money on anybody, why wouldn't I put it on myself?
0: I think it was something else that was said. It was like, would you say the same things that you're saying to yourself, to your best friend? And we were talking about this off camera before of like, why don't you take your own advice? Or, you know, you're telling your friend to go to the hospital and they're not going. But if roles were reversed, they would go. So I always like to think about that. Or our mutual friend, Kristen, had said this, and I I love this piece where she had said, We're all adults just faking it. Like everyone acts like they have their lives together, but we all go through like the imposter syndrome and kind of go through all this. And a lot of people don't talk about it, but it's so interesting. Now, I mean, you started your career as a lawyer working for CPS, and I know you've told me some of the heartbreaking stories, but also all the great work you did. 2008 happens. Walk us through like what was going through your head? How'd you make this change?
1: Yeah, this is sort of the story of how to sell yourself in different ways. You know, I got out of law school. I went to a good school. I was able to work in good firms. And I moved out to the East Coast to practice. I did like products liability for a major, you know, foreign automaker. I did a lot of like, you know, that stuff that seems very high end. And it was in outward appearances. You know, I went straight from undergrad to law school. And I, I guess I regret that. But in the sense that I, I would be curious to see how I, I might have appreciated it more if I had taken space, but we have to move forward from that regret. <laughs> but, you know, the things I really enjoyed about the law were probably like the intellectual puzzle. I liked the research. I like fitting together arguments. But the reality of it day-to-day wasn't for me. I remember I, when I moved back to Michigan, I got headed to come back to Michigan like in 05. I ended up in the Renaissance Center on one of the floors of one of the towers that was filled with banker boxes of paperwork for discovery. And it was my job for months to go through it with a team and highlight references that we were looking for. And that was just soul crushing (laughs) for me. You just go there, sit in the room and flip through things and highlight and I didn't know what I was doing anymore. I mean, I feel like it's one of those moments, and I think this happens in different areas, where you like how what you're doing sounds to other people, but you might not like the reality of it. Does that make sense? It does. I love that analogy. I got to tell people that I was, you know, an attorney and I was doing this like very high-powered litigation and it sounded very cocktail party friendly. But the reality was I didn't find a purpose in it. And so it's just interesting sometimes, you know. Then I ended up getting laid off because the firm lost a couple of its big clients. It was, and then I ended up just bopping from job to job. I picked up contract work. I was just trying to stay busy. That was a really bleak time. I had a friend who went to Harvard Law, and he was waiter catering and doing and doing waiting tables at Red Lobster. So it was a rough time for all of us who had, you know, in our minds we had been told the correct thing is you go to the best law school you can, and you're always going to have this job and. In that period, it wasn't really the case. We were a dime a dozen, and finally, I started picking up some work doing abuse neglect work, you know just for the court and just representing kids in delinquency cases and i I loved it, and I made no money. It was like you know it doesn't unfortunately, for the people who do that job, it's you know you just get paid per piece, and it's not you know the county can't afford to pay a ton but it's good work and it's interesting work and it's meaningful work. And so at that same time, the state had settled its settlement. They had a big lawsuit that had went on with this children's rights group out of New York. They had a settlement and they opened the books, So they had to start hiring a ton of staff to meet the requirements of the settlement. And I had gotten to know some people in the state from doing the work as a lawyer. And I, I was just scraping by. And I was like, you know, you're so interested in this. Like, why not come to the inside? So I did. And I started from the bottom again. And that was, you know, I can't tell you the amount of negative feedback I got from people I knew when I told them I was leaving the law to go do that. Because to a lot of people, especially like my mom, you know, I love her so, but, you know, for her, me being in law was like, you know, a thing she could feel good about when she told her friends probably. Speech, yes. Yeah, but like, you know, my daughter went here and she's working for these firms and she's doing this work. And then now it's like my daughter is a field investigator for Child Protective Services. <laughs> you know, I get that. And I understand that. But I think law teaches you to talk a lot. You know, you learn about words and the power of words and using them for writing and speaking. But I don't always know it teaches you the power of listening. But I was young, I wasn't doing it well. You know, I think if you're doing it well, you're doing both. But when you're young, you think it's about talking all the time. And then as I went to the state and you're working with families and eventually I oversaw, you know, staff and things like that. But you start to understand the power of listening because the job is becomes you're talking to these people and you're trying to help them make choices and trying to get buy-in because quite frankly, you know people love to say that CPS loves the room kids, but it's no joke when you're in the mess of it. You don't want to and you want to find a way. And just listening to what are they saying? What are they not saying? Who are they looking at? Who's controlling that room? You know, and just you start picking up on those cues with people. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts CPS gave me. was the, you know, word choice. You listen to the words they're using, what are the words they're not using. And I think that's something that CPS kind of brought for me. It was just understanding that you really have to be active when you listen to people in all areas and not just be ready with your big case. <laughs> but I think for me, the frustration with the state is, is that it's, it's a bureaucracy. It's built that way. You know? And I got to a point where I had done it long enough that I don't want to say it was like Pleasantville because obviously it's people's lives and it's very deeply personal, but it can feel the same. You know? And you compartmentalize things because you have to. You desensitize yourself because you have to. And so, like, you know, you have these strange conversations about the awful things like domestic violence, and you put them in a scale in your mind because you've seen the gamut of the worst case scenario to the best case scenario. And it's just a lot of things like that. I've always enjoyed the work. But for me, the worst part probably was the internal politics of the state, the inability to make change. I don't always feel that especially, you know, when you're dealing with critical things like that, the priority always should remain on safety of the children and the families. But I also think that the staff is tired and I don't think that's a secret. You know, there's a reason why there's a high burnout rate for social workers in that field. But I also, I don't know the state's the best person to professionally develop staff. And for me, that's something I need, you know, and some people don't. But for me, I think that they get really metric focused because there's the components of the law dealing with CPS that have these set metrics. And as long as like your team is making these metrics, like they don't worry about you. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and I, you know, I had asked once for a mentor and I was told no, because I was doing fine. And quite frankly, like that's not how I view mentorship. Like, I, I have a whole tangent about mentorship that I probably shouldn't get on, behind, but I will because here we are. Hey, We love tangents on this podcast. We don't care. But I would see mentorship happening in some places and even at the state, those who got these mentors. But quite frankly, I don't find a successful mentor relationship to be one where someone simply reaffirms your own worldview of yourself. Like, you're so good. You do great. You're a superstar. And so I often see other women refer to people as mentors. Oh, you're a great mentor. And it's like, but she doesn't offer you any kind of feedback or critical and not critical, but just anything that would help you adjust or become better. And so if you got a mentorship through the state, frequently for me, it just seemed kind of like a mutual love-in, which I wasn't looking for that either. So I was kind of in this weird situation where I was working out of Lansing. My husband was working out of Sterling Heights at the time. We were like, we'd rent a house on the Northville area. And I was commuting and driving and I just, I kind of hit this wall where it's like, how long am I going to, am I going to stuck doing the same thing all the time or I'm not really moving forward? But I have to say, I will bring up the junior league because here we are at the junior league port is that someone had posted about it and I didn't know if it was the right thing for me, but a friend of mine said that she was going to go into the meeting and then she ended up not going and I went. And so (laughs) I ended up joining the junior league. This is my eighth year, as I was telling you before. And it has been a positive experience. You know, it's been a learning experience for certain. I often joke to the people I'm on the board with now because I'm the president that, like, they're lucky they've gotten Melanie 8.0. I think Melanie 1.0, the Junior League, is very different than Melanie 8.0. Someone told me midstream that when you talk... You have to make sure that the other person is open to the message. (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. And if they aren't, you're wasting your time. And I think that's a lesson a lot of us have learned these past couple of years. But this person told me this about four or five years ago, and it's really stuck with me is that not everyone comes to the table willing to listen. And her other point was that sometimes, even if you're correct, people will hear you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. Oh, and did I tell you by the way you're stupid? Even if what you're saying is correct, it's a hollow victory when the other person takes away from it. You're stupid. And so, I like to say that I have become better at being more aware of those times that being right maybe isn't the ultimate victory. Maybe it is getting to the point where you can, you know, have a conversation where people can understand where you're coming from instead of just saying this is it. (laughs) And I've always admired that about
0: you because I feel like you think five steps ahead where you're like this visionary, yes, but you also like, okay, I see your potential in the future, but this is how I'm giving you this feedback for this reason. But like you said, people just take it as you're stupid, you're stupid. And that's not the case there. So I love that part of like, is someone open to hearing this? Because I've been told that too, is like, I didn't ask for your opinion or... My favorite is they ask for your opinion and then don't like what you have to say because it's not all sunshines and rainbows. It's, I'm going to tell you straight. That's exactly how
1: you are. Yeah. One other member, and I asked her to be like my person to help me out. And she's like, I said yes because I know that, you know, you're about no BS. And it's like, no, that's true. Like, I am a high believer in transparency. I still am. I just know there's a difference between being transparent and being mean and just making sure that you ride that line, you know, that you understand that because there's a difference.
0: <laughs> right. And it is in that presentation piece, too. If In your your words, like you said before, when you're talking about being a lawyer, it's all about your words and how you convey them, too. It's your message.
1: Right. So the junior league was good because I actually, my new member year, they were looking for someone to be a donor relations person. And I thought it would sound like a very glamorous thing to do. It really just meant I ended up running around all over the Detroit metro area trying to find donations for a fundraiser. But it terrified me because I had never really done anything like that and I felt like I did really well at it in the end. And so I did fundraising for them as part of my, you know, leadership. And as I got to the point of the state where I was getting tired of doing what I was doing just because I had felt that I was getting really rote and I don't ever want to be in a job where I feel like I'm just doing things rotely. I always want to feel like I'm really adding value. And I know there's times in your career where you're not a superstar every moment. That doesn't happen, you know, but you know I just wanted to feel like more sense of purpose about what I was doing because if you want to change the world, don't go work for the government, (laughs) mid-level bureaucracy. You're not going to see that change you're hoping to make. You're just quite frankly too small on the pole. But from there, I was like, okay, well, I've enjoyed this volunteer fundraising and let's maybe see if someone will be interested in hiring me. And I can tell you the answer is initially no, no one was interested. (laughs) I think they looked at my resume and they were like, what is even happening here? Like, what is she doing? Right. Like, you know, you're a lawyer, you have this degree, like why? Like you're coming from children's services. Like how is any of this transferable? It's just so funny in these past years with the staffing shortage, how that conversation has changed so much you know, now they are very much willing to consider transferable skills or the idea of training someone into a position because there's this shortage of candidates. But I feel like pre-pandemic, it was like, well, you don't have, you know, 90% of the traits we need. So no. And so I guess I felt like I was lucky and I ended up going to work for my mentor now. I worked for her and we're not together anymore, but she hired me at Walsh and she was the director of advancement there. And She's amazing, just amazing, just so smart. And she's playing chess. You know, she had worked at major health systems. She had raised millions of dollars, just really a top shelf person. And the very first day I went to lunch with her, we were out at Bill's, which is, you know, <laughs> I think it's don't on the Woodward in Bloomfield. And someone came up to me who knew her and he said to me, he said, You're lucky. You're working one of the best there is. And I was like, Wow. Working with her was like a master class because. She thinks so deeply about word choice. Like, you, know, you would write something for her, and she would go through and she would just tweak these small things through it. And those little small changes were subtle, but incredibly meaningful and impactful. And it just, just the way she thought about things. And I still probably talk to her, you know, every other week or so. But she was one of the first people to give me like negative feedback, which is what I needed, you know? like when the pandemic hit and everyone was on Zooms and, you know, it gets very easy to pick up your phone and just like scrolling through Instagram when you're bored in a meeting. And so I was in this meeting with a lot of people. And so she texted me and she said, I can see that you're on your phone and you look like you're scrolling. And if I can see this, so can the president. Is that a message I wanted? No. But was that a message I needed? Yes. And so oh my gosh. I appreciate her because she would check me that way. And, you know, and, and I never thought it was mean. I, and I, it's funny, like one of my best coworkers ever. I worked with her at Walsh until she retired out from there. And then I went to the Henry Ford Museum and I had a coworker there too, Becky. I don't know if she'll ever listen, but she was the same way. She checked me that way too. And I still talk to her. I mean, to me, those are your real friends. Those are your real mentors. The people who praise you when it's due, but will also pull you back when and you need that. And so I'm grateful for that. But I just, it kind of stuns me that it, I had to be 40 years old to find someone to mentor me. <laughs> but that is a great point about mentors because it's, you don't want the person that's going to
0: just hype. Like I like to say you're hype person. That's just anything you do. I'm in, I'm in, you know, no matter what. But like you said, give you the praise when it's due, and then level you out when it's needed. And those are the best people. I mean, and relating back to how you said how your family and some friends thought you were crazy for changing careers. I mean, it's those same people that are like, okay, let me ask questions through this. Let's see it through. But I support you. But those are always great to hear. Now, with all of this, what's in store for your future? Because you've already achieved so much
1: already. But So I... Well, now it's actually, I think, two official months. I started at the end of October with Life Lab Kids as their chief development officer. At the time, I wasn't really looking for a job. And I think this is an important thing to know for people who are out there because, I don't know, all my life, I was always very purposeful. Like, when I'm, okay, I'm ready to look for a job as if like <laughs> it's, it, was, it came to me in a really unusual way. And, you know, I think it's funny, especially if you're a systems and process person and you work for a lot of places. Like, you often think, well, if I could do it my own way, I mean, this thing would just be like ripping off its rails, right? I would just like nail it. And this would be way better run than it currently is wherever I am. And when this opportunity came before me, you know, it is a newer nonprofit. They started in 2019. They've been very successful and they haven't had a development officer before. So they're looking for a chief development officer to establish all those systems and processes for them. And Part of me with a pop-up with the imposter syndrome was like, Well, who am I to say I could do this? And then you get back to the whole idea of like, well, why not me? Yeah. <laughs> me, who else will it be? Right. I mean, I know that I'm willing to work hard. I really think this cause is great. And I'll put everything to it. I think that's all I need, really. You know, I think I can do it and I'm only do all the work it takes to make sure we get there. So what more could an employer ask for? <laughs> but no, I really I have loved it. I have loved it. I like what we do, you know, we' provide comprehensive services for kids with developmental disabilities. So there's like 10 different therapies and enrichments. We do art, music, tech, behavioral, occupational feeding, all kinds of things. And, you know, my boss, Jay, is wonderful. I know we're only two months deep, but he is someone who's been successful in a different industry. And he started this nonprofit after kind of seeing the struggles that he encountered as a parent with his own child. And, you know, he's been successful enough that he didn't have to do it for anybody else. You know, we see that a lot. People with means do it for their own families. And that's fine. And that's acceptable. But for him, it wasn't, you know, and he's doing it for others. And I think that's fantastic. What I really like about working with him is he's always willing to consider positives out of failure. Not that we're failing, but, you know, just like, let's say you pick something, like, I don't know, like a service or something, and it just doesn't work out well. He doesn't see it as a waste of money. He's like, well, now we know that we need this kind of qualities and we don't want this. And so the next thing we pick will be better. And, you know, it's that fast moving ability to recalibrate that's really been a joy to work with. You know, he's very positive. He's got a great energy. But I like the fact that he listens to everybody. He respects all of his staff. It's been really lovely to work in that environment where just that ability to try because I think sometimes, especially in bigger places, they can bear the brunt of a small failure easily, right? They have the financial means, it's a blip on the radar. But I think when you get successful, there can be that tendency to stay safe you're protecting a brand. And that's all valuable too, but I don't know, I guess I'm just happier you know, with all my burners on high <laughs> trying to stir all the pots. So I have loved that. And so I guess what's next for me is, you know, we built this sensory garden and play park that is suitable for children with disabilities. So we're trying to work through like what partnerships look like for that. And how can we get kids with these disabilities who are often kind of left out of traditional mainstream recreational activities? How can we build programming that lets people, you know, with children to come use the facilities and also, you know, get those experiences because they learn like camaraderie and cooperation and acceptance of others. And so that's kind of the first piece. But like, I think for me, I am so excited. On my first day of work, Jay came to me with this like drawing. He's drawing circles and circles and circles and he's explaining it. And essentially, because as his son ages, he does realize the like gaps in service that he wants to do a pre-vocational program. So the idea would be that instead of waiting until these children reach 18, 19, 20 to start talking about jobs, like we already know it takes, you know, a longer and different kind of dedicated effort to get them certain skill sets they need for employment, like why are we waiting? Why aren't we starting when they're 10 or 11? You know, in some ways, we do it naturally with children in mainstream, right? Like we give them, I don't know, Max came home and told me that he was, told he took up some sort of personality test. He's going to be a psychiatrist now. So, <laughs> like, you know, we're doing it all the time with kids in mainstream. But, you know, I think the idea of what if we start earlier? You know, what if we give them that time? You know, how does that change their trajectory? I think to be a good fundraiser, you have to come from a place of really doing the work to understand what you're talking about. And so that's been me reading medical journals (laughs) and things like that. And I guess I've been really kind of just thinking about these kids and their paths and the fact that, you know, children with autism, I think the life expectancy is somewhere in the 50s. Well, why is that? And thinking about, like, how can we help these kids have, you know, like, I found purpose in this job for me. Like, how do we help these kids find their purpose? And that's just like, you know, if you think about that, it's just really... It's overwhelming. That for me is like, if we can get this program up and running, I will be so proud to just see that happen. And that's kind of my next big thing. But I like being a part of something like this. This is, this gets back to, I think I mentioned before we started talking, you know, this is planting trees that you'll, I might never see the shade from, but someone will. And that will be really a lovely thing. So I'm excited, but it's a lot. And it's terrifying for me. I've never been like this entrenched in a program and trying to build out, like help build out what this looks like and what kind of money is this going to take and where the heck are we going to find this money (laughs) (laughs) in this economy? But I think it's worthwhile, especially because we have some really interesting kids. You know, we have a couple kids that they're just fixing things for free. We try to anytime the kids show an inclination towards a path of a career to just let them see what happens. And so there's a couple of kids that are like taking apart things. And so we said, okay, well, let's see if they can fix things. And so we've been asking people to bring in stuff like cell phones and laptops and vacuums, and they've been fixing them all. And then they ended up like created a business, so to speak. And then they like, you know, they even did a little proposal for Jay to buy them like little mini screwdrivers and things like that. And it's just like, well, what if we started doing that with all kinds of kids? You know, we have one kid that's basically on the weekends does his own little like restaurant out of our kitchen. And it's just seeing like, how can we change kids' lives that way? So now that's my next big thing is <laughs> helping other people have their next big thing. I love that.
0: And as we wrap this up, what advice do you have for listeners? Open-ended, however you take that question.
1: I think I would tell listeners to do things that scare you. You know, it's funny. I don't remember what the quote came. I get this quote a day, but it was like, you have, you know, a choice. You either take a step forward in risk and growth, or you take a step backward toward safety. And so I think there's a lot of that. And there's also this, I think it's another quote too. It's a bit like, you know, people think they stay the same, but the reality is you don't. You either get better or get worse all the time. It's just on a sliding scale. Ooh, never thought of that. Get better or worse over time. So like, you know, I guess in in a really obvious way is if you think about people who like don't update their hairstyle, right? Like, you know, a woman is of a certain age because like her hairstyle looks like probably what she used to wear when she was young, right? She stayed the same. But it's the same thing with people. Like if you keep doing the same thing all the time and you don't change who you are and you aren't evolving, you're not actually staying the same, right?
0: (laughs) It's always interesting because like, I don't know why it's just maybe just being nostalgic lately or because it's the end of the year. Well, when this goes out, it'll be the new year. But it's so interesting to think about like the evolution. And I think especially like different life changes happen. 2022 is just everything in life just I threw out the window and went completely different, but it's like you do want to evolve over time personally, professionally in your relationships, know what you want, have that confidence. And that's something like, I know I've said this 5,000 times, but I've always admired that about you is that, yes, you have your moments of imposter syndrome and you are someone that's very vocal and vulnerable with people that are close with you. But you're also like, okay, great. We can fix this. Let's make this better. Let's do this. Let's evolve. Like, I see potential in you. Let's do this. And where do you want to be? What do you want to grow into? So, I've just loved every part of what you've said. I've known you were going to be a great guest, but even points you've brought up have just been just like such a great reminder to anyone listening, no matter whatever you're eighteen to seventy eight.
1: Thank you for that. Well, thank you. I just do think that, like, and this is not original thought, but like there are endless start overs in your life maybe when you die. Obviously, that's a different beginning. But (laughs) there's no perfect day to start anything. And there's no like, it's not like a genie. You don't only get three times to try something different for yourself. So do it. I love that. Thank
0: you so much. This has been so much fun. For those of you listening who want to follow Melanie, learn more about Life Lab Kids, everything will be in the show notes that you can connect with her, follow her. And thanks for tuning into another episode of That's Business.